0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this Paddy Fest will be discovering the painted heart of Ireland in the 1960s. Paddy Woodworth will be here to add his latest addition to the Naturalist bookshelf. And Ornia Gallagher will be heading into a pleasantly distressed industrial space in central Dublin to hear what's been happening in music education recently. But we start the weekly in the Ireland of 1966 with the writer Mary Morrissey. Morris Morrissey set off into the world of art curation after seeing for the first time a painting by Una Waters she thought she knew. Waters was a 20th century Irish painter who had some success in her lifetime but had all but disappeared from attention after the paintings of her final show were gifted to friends and relations and disappeared into private spaces. The job Morrissey gave herself was to reunite Waters' images from that 1966 exhibition and in the process, New appreciation of a neglected Irish painter. She talked to Culturefile about bringing Una Waters back into the light.
1: I felt, in a way, the same way as I felt about reading Dubliners for the first time—that suddenly you see your own place transformed by art. I came across Una Waters because my partner was gifted a painting of Una's and for a long time it sat in our house in a back room a dining room that we didn't use much north facing quite quite dark and then we moved house and Una's painting got moved with us and suddenly it was in a completely different room uh, light filled and a room we used all the time and suddenly And this is really, in a way, the retrospective exhibition is called Into the Light. And it's a kind of a metaphor for that experience I had with Una's painting, that it came into the light and I suddenly saw it for the first time almost, even though I'd been living with it for years. The painting is Girl Walking by Trinity in the Rain, a profile of a woman in red holding up an umbrella in a an awful downpour uh, which is depicted in the painting almost like three-dimensionally so there's sort of slashes of rain going from top left and the rain, you can almost feel it that stinging cold rain the sort of rain you'd have around this time of the year in fact
2: Because I'm walking the streets the
1: rain and in the background is the kind of flinty stone of Trinity College and the legs of the goldsmith statue. And there's just something really visceral and physical about it and fell in love. I really saw it for the first time. I then became very curious about her other work and that started the quest.
2: Because I'm walking the streets in the rain
1: Eugene Waters, also perhaps better known as Ono Thurishk, was both an Irish language and English language writer, poet, playwright. They were an extraordinarily devoted couple involved in artistic pursuits. He was a great champion of her works. But Eugene sort of, you know, inadvertently helped to make her work fall out of view. And then her reputation, you know, an artist's reputation often disappears like that if people don't see the work. But he was absolutely grief stricken and heartbroken when she died prematurely at the age of 47. And he arranged the exhibition as a kind of a memorial exhibition and gathered 37 of her paintings together, and they were put on show in St. Stephen's Green, not so far away from where we are now. And after that, he gave all of these paintings, and many more paintings, because the 37 in that show are only a small portion of what she painted. He gave them away. Now, he gave them to family, and he gave them to friends, and he gave them to people who would appreciate Una's work. So it was just one of those kind of bitter ironies in a way. He wanted people who appreciated and liked Una to have her work, but in fact, uh, in a way, it kind of worked against her 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 reputation living on. Sheila Smith, uh, Una's niece, we kind of got together and decided perhaps it would be possible to put on a show. Now, we're both absolute amateurs in this business, you know. But we used, we had a catalogue of that 1966 show, so that was a basis. We knew those 37 paintings existed, maybe 10 or 12 of them we, we found pretty quickly. We only traced about 26 of the 37, and so we know there are more out there, and, of course, we discovered ones we didn't know about when we started looking. We also discovered some watercolours, a series of watercolours, which Una did in the very last weeks of her life. Again, after her death, Eugene donated them to the Bridge Club in uh, Ballinasloe, which is where he was from. And the Bridge Club used to meet in the Emerald Ballroom, and the Emerald Ballroom is no more in Ballinasloe. It's now a kind of a community centre. But people around Ballinasloe remembered that there were paintings of Unas hanging in the Bridge Club. And so we went looking for them. And we discovered them on the walls of what was the room where the Bridge Club met, but in fact now it's a computer room. And there they were, about four or five of them. And then... The janitor did some hunting around and found in the cupboard, you know, eight or ten more. And when we took them out to reframe them, we found other ones on the back. So we're thinking we almost have the full set. Somewhere, my
2: love, there will be songs to sing.
0: The things I was enjoying uh, about the paintings and, and I suppose I was particularly interested in the Dublin ones is just that the intensity of, of a life that's disappeared or you know that throb of the city that isn't ours but we recognise our modern version of it. That, that, that's very exciting to see in those paintings.
1: Yes, I mean, I think particularly there's a wonderful painting called Kappa Road, which is of the new suburbs in Finglas in the 60s. I mean, Una was based in Finglas, but kind of old Finglas, a place called Kappa Cross, which kind of has been obliterated by the motorway now. So she lived in a kind of very rural setting, but all around her, you know, the new city was, was growing up, the new suburbs were growing up around her. And you would think perhaps that, you know, an artist might think, oh, this is a terrible encroachment. Whereas in fact, Capa Road is like a very joyful celebration of the new suburb where the life life is lived out in the street. There's loads of people, there's two old ladies having a gossip, there's a go-car, there are two or three boys chasing a ball, you know, there's a kind of a Uh, a slacker young man waiting at a bus stop smoking a cigarette. One of the things I love about these kind of street scenes are that she manages to create extraordinary characters. You know, you, you recognize these kind of people from memory or maybe you know from from your everyday life. And yet, you know, the the features are almost defaced. You know, she managed to create characters by movement and gesture in the paintings which makes them very lively. In fact, Capa Road is one of three paintings she did of the new suburb of Finglas. And the other two we have not traced, and we would love to find them. One of them is called uh, Building Scheme, and the other one is called School Break. And they're all of around Capa Road and Finglas. And we're wondering, perhaps, are they somewhere out in Finglas? Does somebody in Finglas still have them? Uh, because one of the things that Eugene was was quite good at was matching people's matching the paintings with people's interests. So this is a shout out to anybody in Finglas: have a look and see in your attics, in your storerooms, wherever your garages, maybe you have Una Waters' other Finglas paintings.
3: Just be
4: my love, till-
1: she won a design competition to to create a symbol for the 1966 jubilee of the easter rising which was a beautiful minimal sort of rendition of Clive solish the sword of light and that was picked out of a public competition and somewhat uh, reluctantly picked out it seems somewhat reluctantly yes i mean the <laughs> Well it does beg the question who was adjudicating and I won't cast you know aspersions on the adjudicators but they said it was the best of a bad lot but you know it was very ubiquitous for the 1966 commemoration so it was on the front of buses and it was made into little pins and brooches and and you feel that it might have certainly if it happened today it it could be something that would make somebody's name. I think it would suddenly transport them into a different sphere and maybe you know raise their public profile, but Unfortunately, by the time she you know the the design went into operation, she was already dead. in fact, there's a rather poignant story that her sister tells of the prize of, I think it was £100, uh, which arrived on the day her funeral was held.
0: I was talking there to Mary Morrissey, and that exhibition, Una Waters, Into the Light, runs at United Arts Club in Dublin until April 2nd. Next, it's time to squeeze the fat books in the thin and see if we can't make space for Paddy Woodworth's latest addition to the Naturalist bookshelf in which he builds a collection of essential nature writing. So far, each author has been allowed to contribute but one volume to the shelf. But new times, new rules, as Paddy returns to the writing of Helen MacDonald.
2: There is a very telling, if passing, moment in the last book we took down from my bookshelf for this programme, Helen MacDonald's H is for Hawk. She meets a couple while out hunting with her goshawk, and they swap stories about the local deer. It's a happy, celebratory conversation until it suddenly takes a dark turn. Isn't it a relief, the man says, that there are things still like these deer a real bit of old England still left despite all these immigrants coming in. In MacDonald's new book, Vesper Flights, she explores this alarming link between nature-loving and nationalism and many other problematic ways in which we engage with the natural world with the ruthless honesty that is her hallmark. I devoured these pungent essays with fascination, at times delighted by the lucidity of her happier visions and more often troubled and challenged by her insights and as i read and reread them in recent weeks my fascination was tempered by the ghastly news from ukraine which sometimes added almost unbearable poignancy to her observations in one piece she watches massive waves of migrating cranes crossing a hungarian lake at dusk along wavering chevron of beating wings inked across the darkening sky. She notes how such flocks can appear to us almost as single entities with a unitary will of their own, but they're actually made up of individuals and families, each trying to make its own way in a difficult world. And this thought leads her to recall the human migrants halted just a hundred miles away from this idyllic lake where the Hungarian government has erected razor wire fences to prevent refugees from the war in Syria crossing their frontier. These passages inevitably sharpen their thrust given the grim contemporary exodus from Ukraine. And they should perhaps make us remember how badly we, in Ireland also, have already failed refugees from wars and tyrants further afield than Europe, simply because their cultures differ from our own. MacDonald, trained in philosophy, peels back comfortable middle-class assumptions about the essential decency of natural history to reveal many other awkward but unexamined questions. She registers again and again the tension between our hubristic claims to use science to see other species as they really are and our competing compulsion to see animals as extensions or reflections of our own existential concerns. And she exposes how science itself, for all its supposed commitment to cool objectivity, frequently reflects this very compulsion in its language, theories, and strategies. Writing today in the shadow of resurgent English nationalism, she notes how much English natural history has been conditioned by cultural and political history. Henry Elliot Howard, for example, produced a widely accepted, still widely held, theory that birdsong is not a sexual come-on, and much less the outpouring of love imagined by romantic poets. Instead, the song is staking a small bird's small claim to a patch of English ground. She dryly points out that this quietly belligerent theory was developed just after the First World War. And during the Second World War, Julian Huxley told BBC listeners that nature study was a kind of patriotic obligation. If you don't know your birds, you can't fully know your country. She draws provocative connections between engaging armies of citizen scientists to document the movement of migrant birds and the mobilisation of civilians to report enemy aircraft. Now, of course, MacDonald is not saying for a moment that citizen science is a bad thing, nor that science always limits our imaginations. On the contrary, in one essay she's eloquent on the capacity of scientific understanding to open up a much deeper sense of wonder in us about the world. No, she is simply highlighting that there is no single correct way to engage with nature. Like Shea she suggests that we should not be afraid to credit marvels, and that a singing bird may have as many meanings as there are people to hear it sing, plus the meaning, always unknowable to us, that the song has for the bird itself. She crosses lines into places where the gatekeepers of the orthodox human nature narrative would probably prefer a nature writer did not go. She keeps company with Irish travellers, delighting in a caged goldfinch with unusual pied plumage. She recognises that she keeps birds and keeps pets at least as much for her own well-being as for theirs. And she hints that birders in a hide may often be almost as remote from experiencing the real natural world as the viewers of an Attenborough documentary. A deep sense of loss underlies MacDonald's writing. Both her own individual mortality and the extinction of species and habitats haunt her continually. But they spur her to seek out and, wherever she can still find it, to luminously celebrate life's diversity, beauty and wonder.
0: Paddy Woodworth there on Helen MacDonald's Vesper Flights. And don't forget, have a look at the Culture File weekly page on the RTE site for Paddy's episode on MacDonald's H is for Hawk and indeed all the other books on the Naturalist bookshelf. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, a future for music education hiding in a warehouse in Dublin's North City. Listen, perform, compose is the creed of Dabble Do, an innovative music education programme for primary school students. It skips, as much as possible, the on-paper approach and even the need for a traditional instruments. Dabble Do held a series of workshops last week called Listen, Perform, Compose in the lovingly distressed heart of Dublin One, the complex gallery. Gallery. Anya Gallagher dropped in on one of these workshops where primary school students were getting familiar with everything from jazz, percussion, to ambient electronics and met some of the dabble-doers.
2: One,
3: two, three, The reason we're kind of in the complex this week is because um, we're celebrating ten years of dabble-do this year. So in 2012, uh, myself and Killian Redmond, we uh, got together and designed a book which was a kind of a workbook based around composing and graphic notation and creative music-making for primary schools, uh, which thankfully was a complete commercial flop because then we decided to go and uh, build an interactive website. So we decided the books were maybe an old-fashioned way and maybe not using the kind of best way we could, the technology that exists in the classrooms. So we spent the next few years developing this interactive uh, set of resources for, for teaching music, and it works much better. You can have video and you can have audio and you can have all sorts of things straight into the classroom. Trying to be many people. No, just be your yourself. Two, three, four. It's kind of a way to make it accessible for all teachers, you know, teachers who might not be music specialists as well. Um, the resources are kind of aimed at making it inclusive for everyone like that. I'm Shane McKenna from double Do Music and uh, double Do Music is a method and a resource for teaching music in primary schools that uh, we work with uh, schools and teachers and children all across the country to deliver the uh, primary school curriculum and it's based on a kind of system of graphic notation and interactive resources that we use in the classroom so Instead of using the traditional music notation, with, especially with the younger classes, we use more alternative forms of graphic notation to get them composing and performing uh, in the classroom. And that's what this show is all about this week. So it's called Listen, Perform, Compose, which are the three main strands that we want the children doing in the classroom every day. So listening to music, uh, then getting creative, composing their own music, and then getting the instruments in their hands, and um, singing and performing music as well.
2: Do you like singing as well? Or dancing. I like I am dancing and make
3: up songs. Brilliant. And how does music make you feel?
2: Happy. 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 And, you
3: um, music, you and so we're not
4: really in the traditional classroom setup right no. now either.
3: No, so that's another thing why we chose this venue. This is down in the complex. It's usually used uh, as a exhibition space. So it kind of looks like a big warehouse. Which is what the kids have noticed What's as well. The best thing about music, do you think? It's fun.
2: It's fun. It's
3: yeah. So it's in the part of the city where the fruit markets would be traditionally. So this would have been one of the big industrial buildings for that. So we're right in the thick of it here, and it's a it's a kind of a, quite a large room, and we've we've got it set up with the technology that they would have in the primary school classroom. So we've got interactive whiteboards, which are huge kind of screens, touch screens that they use in the classroom and we've set up three screens around the room and in the middle of the room we've got a little setup for guest musicians. So a big part of what we do in, in the curriculum that we put in for schools is trying to get the children and teachers to listen to a lot of Irish artists and find out what's going on in kind of contemporary music around the place. So we had guest musicians each day, Johnny Taylor, jazz musician, we had Dream Cycles, Jen, who's a kind of electronic artist, and then we had Cahill, who's uh, Carl O'Leary, who's a drummer. And each day they would play along with the, the children using our different resources around the place. Yeah. What colour? Jen told me her favourite colour She might join in with the green group. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of a fun room. We kind of took a long time to make it nice and comfortable for the kids, so they kind of go around in a circle. Um, at the different stations, play a little bit of uh, atmospheric soundscape music. Then they do some more rhythmic kind of uh, performance stuff. Uh, There's a little corner that we're sitting in at the moment where the children then create their own little compositions. So we asked them on the walk from their school. So there was a school from uh, Gardner Street, the model infant school there. So they have a 20-minute walk here. So we asked them to think of the sounds that they heard through Dublin as they walked to the venue. And then when they get here, they draw a symbol to represent each of those sounds and then put it in a sequence and that's their kind of sound composition, so the Dublin sounds composition. nice? Lovely. We do that together with the triangles. Just triangles then, we're going to
1: play it again and with the triangles. One, two,
3: three, go. A great one here so one of the a little boy came in and i was asking him so what sounds did you hear walking through dublin today and a giraffe was his first answer <laughs> so the teacher told us that they didn't walk past the zoo but he had a great imagination so he's got a, i think he's got, he's got an elephant it looks like a saber-toothed tiger then next and then the last one's a seagull which is actually in the middle of one of our group performances we did uh, with Jen dream cycles there's a silent part in the middle so we're all playing our instruments and they're all colour-coded, so we all know when to play, and they've got their simple uh, kind of classroom instruments we're all playing together. But at at one moment of the performance, there's a silence where we have to be as quiet as possible, and there were seagulls fighting on the roof at that point, so the room was lovely and silent, then we heard these seagulls. So a lot of their compositions had seagulls. Also, it's been a very rainy week, so there's a lot of rain, the sound of rain. I'll ask you a question for us. Have you had one animal... If you had a band full of animals, and you
2: had to choose an animal to
3: play the drums, what animal would you choose? Monkey! Monkey! Monkey would be
2: great, yeah, could they use their tail as well to play some of the drums, yeah? Yeah. What other animal
3: would be good at playing the drums? So today is Cotl O'Leary, who's a musician that, uh, myself and Chris, who's with DabbleDoo as well, we play in a band with him. uh, And he's a a great drummer. We always love to hear, even at sound checks, when we play with him, our favourite part of the gig is listening to Cotl playing the drums. Um, So we thought the children would love to hear that as well. And it's a really cool thing as well for the children to walk in. We've got guitars and organs and we've got a whole drum kit set up in the middle of the room for the the children to to listen to and play along with. So as the children go around the room and play their little interactive performances, uh, Cahill is going to join in with them as well and talk to them about what kind of sounds he's using, if he's using the the bass drum or the snare or the cymbals and have a little chat and, and play along with the kids.
4: I'm Cahill. I'm um, a musician and drummer based in Dublin. Taking into consideration the room, the present. So we're in a, sort of a warehouse-based environment. Um, stone walls, very, very um, echoey. So taking that into consideration... Be maintaining sort of long tones or, or uh, maybe s- s- staying away from um, beat oriented playing, playing it by ear and listening to the kids and seeing what they come up with first and going from there.
3: Um, Cahill did these great videos for us actually when, when you were living out, out west where we got him to use some of the resources and use kind of drum kits that he'd made up himself because over the period there where the kids weren't really able to share instruments in the classroom they were they were making up instruments using whatever objects they had kind of found around the place, and Carl had made up made up a drum kit of like some stones that you found on the beach. Uh, for the kick pedal, you had a
4: Large frying pan, sort of very orient, oriental sounding yeah. stones, shells, this kind of thing. This is just something that you find in the in the down by the sea. Really, the, you'd be surprised at the things that wash up in Cunnamulla. You know. Yeah, so that was a lovely part
3: actually for the kids to see that here's a musician who's finding these just unusual objects and then creating a whole uh, drum kit out of it. Um, it's a part of the thing that we we kind of uh, want the kids to explore as well, different sound objects that aren't kind of the traditional instruments. I hope yeah. they
4: um, they you know they, they didn't raid the the the, uh, the kitchen presses mm-hmm. and cause any trouble. yeah. <laughs>
0: Anya Gallagher there was talking to the DabbleDoo team at their recent Dublin sessions. More at DabbleDooMusic.com. And that brings to a close this edition of the File Weekly. We'll be back with more syncopated teachings next Saturday, tea time. And of course, any time is tea time when you subscribe to the File podcast on your favourite podcast platform. Bye now.